whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to the second season of Five Questions, the podcast where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? So thanks, Kieran. I'm happy to, to do this. So I'm Richard Kimberly Heck. Uh, some of you may know me under a different name. I had my name changed three years ago in just a couple of days. I'm probably best known for my work on Frege's philosophy of mathematics. The two books I published, one is on neo-Fregean approaches to philosophy of mathematics. The other is a more historical book on Frege's magnum opus, The Basic Laws of Arithmetic. I've also worked in philosophy of language, often sort of 3Dian approaches there, philosophy of mind, philosophy of logic. And most recently, though, I've kind of shifted gears and started working on a range of issues connected with gender and sexuality, starting with some stuff on pornography, because a lot of the analytic literature on that is grounded in philosophy of language. So it was sort of a natural place for me to get started, but I'm kind of moving away from the analytic philosophy of language part and more into approaches that are grounded in things like media studies and queer theory. So that's, you know, I've worked on a lot of different things, but I've taught a lot of different things and had a lot of fun doing it. Well, it's great to have you here. I'm going to start off with the first question I always ask, inspired by Iris Murdoch, who begins the podcast telling us that philosophy is not self-expression, but who also wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament influence your philosophy? And if so, how? So many of your listeners may know that I knew, knew about this question in advance, and I've thought a lot about it. I'm going to play philosopher for a second. And I wonder if Murdoch's own approach to philosophy and sort of the kind of philosophy she did and the way she did philosophy influenced this remark of hers. When I think about the work I do in logic, for example, or philosophy of mathematics, that sort of very technical stuff, I struggle a little bit to, to know what to make of the question. Though in the end, I think what I've decided is that maybe there's a sense in which all creative intellectual work, to some extent, is influenced in a, in a very profound way by certain aspects of one's character. And I think with students, I often talk about intellectual character. It's, critical to be open-minded, to be able to examine your own views and thoughts in an objective way. I don't think this is unique to philosophy. I think this is probably true. I, my daughter, for example, is a cognitive scientist. And I know that you know she engages in very similar sorts of reflection. It's, the work is challenging, personally challenging for her in a way that philosophy, I think, is personally challenging. So in some ways, I think it, it can't but influence certain aspects of the way you work, these aspects of intellectual character. But I'm not, let's say I do struggle a little bit to know what more to say about that kind of question, given partly the kind of work that, that I've done a lot of. I mean, how would you describe your temperament? Maybe we can try and reconstruct something on the fly. Like if, you, if someone put you on the spot as I'm doing now, what, what would you say? 
I mean, in some ways, I'm a fairly mellow person. I generally like to think of myself as fairly easygoing, but I am also, I don't know, maybe it's the Irish part of me that I can be a bit excitable sometimes. And I have a tendency to stick my neck out on occasion. I won't maybe not talk about that too much. But I think, you know, there's a way in which I'm not afraid to be wrong. I'm, I'm afraid to be, this is actually getting ahead a little bit, but I, I don't want to be desperately wrong. But I think I've been doing philosophy long enough to know that it would be silly to try to evaluate my work or anyone else's work on the basis of whether they were right about things. So I'm happy to throw ideas out and not worry too much about kind of the ultimate rightness or wrongness of them, as long as I've done a good job of presenting them and thinking through things. And so I think there's a, a, a bit of a, um, I don't know, not sure what word to use here, bloody mindedness, maybe, uh-huh. um, that sometimes comes through in, in the way I do things. And can you say something about why technical work in logic specifically appeal to you? I mean, is there a, a temperamental or character connection there? Actually, one of the things I love about philosophy, it's maybe the thing I love most about it, is that it is so diverse and that it is it's though it's much more specialized now than it was when I was a graduate student, you know, thirty years ago. It's not so specialized that you can't, as I recently have, you know, made a, make a kind of radical shift in what kind of work you do. And when I went to college at Duke University, 1982, I showed up as a freshman. I thought I was going to be a mathematician. I'd, I'd always been really good at math. That's always what I thought I was going to do. And I fell in love with philosophy. And at the beginning of my philosophical life, I didn't do philosophy mathematics, and I didn't really do logic. And it's been a great thing to find out that I could put these disabilities that I have to use in, in philosophy and kind of do something that's very mathematical. I'll say one other thing about that, though. Sure. One of the great things about logic is that if you prove a theorem, you've proved it. <laughs> and right, I mean, maybe you made a mistake, but if you didn't make a mistake, you proved a theorem and it's there and it's done. Right? It's not like philosophy where you give this argument and, and you know, no matter how good it is, 82 people are going to disagree with you. Right. In logic, they might think it's boring or whatever, but there's a certain finality to it that I that I really appreciate. Well, that definitely connects up with the idea of being wrong. But maybe we'll maybe we'll come back to that later. I want to ask question two, which is about shifts in your work in philosophy, though not specifically shifts in subject matter or topic, but whether you've changed your mind about any important question in philosophy, and if so, how? So, yes, um, I have, and in really a fairly dramatic way. So I have done a lot of work in different ways on what's called Frege's puzzle. So a standard way to introduce it, you might think there's this guy, Fred, and Fred lives in a little, in Hartford, Connecticut, say, and he's a couple of doors down is this guy named Sam Clemens. He sees him at the grocery store. He sees him out in his yard and stuff. And then he's also heard of this author, Mark Twain. He's read a couple of his novels. Fred does not know that that Sam is actually Mark Twain. And so he thinks that Mark Twain's very famous and a great writer. And he doesn't know whether Sam is famous. He doesn't know how many views about that. And so it looks like we should say that there are, in effect, two kinds of beliefs that Fred can have. He can have 
the belief that Mark Twain is famous. He could have the belief that Sam Clemens is famous. Those are different beliefs. And so Frego says that we need to think of those as having different contents. So they express different propositions or whatever language one wants to use. Frego says they have different senses. And so I started out thinking that that was right. So I wrote some early papers about the kind of philosophy of language side of this. And then around 2005 or so, I think I started writing this paper in which I was going to really work through the arguments for for that claim, that we should think of these beliefs as expressing different propositions or different contents or different senses or whatever. And as I did it, I kept running into this argument. So I'd, I'd write up a, a, a section dealing with the objection, and I'd think, okay, that's good. And then I'd, just a couple of weeks later, I'd think, no, that's not good. There's an answer to that. And I went back and forth like that for quite a long time, probably for months, and eventually decided, <laughs> actually, the objection's pretty good. And so I changed my view. I mean, I, I still think that there are two different beliefs, but I don't think that they're, they're, the difference between the beliefs is one of sense or content, the way that, that Frege said. And um, I'm not sure there are much more foundational things I could have changed my mind about than that. Well, this may be too inside baseball, but is it is the objection one that you could explain for a, a kind of novice audience? So, I mean, there the idea there's this idea that goes back to at least Fodor that what we should say, so we, we should, we're thinking, we kind of think of the mind as a kind of computational device, so it's got these various computational states that it's in, and we can just think of these beliefs as sort of token mental states. They're just some brain configuration. They're, they have different computational properties, so they interact with other beliefs in different ways. And we just, we'll just say that all the differences between them are down to the fact that they're just computationally distinct states. The difficulty with that is that this makes it look like the sort of, in effect, neurological details of the states are entering in somehow to our explanations of how this guy Fred is behaving. Right? When he's in one neurological state, he does this. When he's in a neurological state, he does he does that. And that seems bad for, for a variety of reasons. Maybe that maybe would be too inside baseball. So what I ended up deciding was that there was a way around this this objection so that you could have a view that was kind of like this Fedorian view, but that wasn't vulnerable to this objection about kind of getting explanatory stuff all wrong. To say more than that probably would get deeply complicated. Well, in, th- in that case, let's let's swerve away from foundational issues and complexities to some more superficial features of your life as a philosopher. So he- here's question three. What's the most important work of philosophy you've never read? So the most important work of philosophy that I've never read is a tough one. So I'll admit that I've never read the Critique of Pure Reason, nor have I read the second critique or the third critique. I did take the sort of standard early modern course that philosophy concentrators always take. So we read, I think, the prolegomenon and the groundwork. But I'm not well read generally in, in history of philosophy. So I've never read anything by Hegel, for example, 19th century philosophy before Frege is just a black hole as far as I'm concerned. But I was thinking about something that would really be kind of embarrassing. And so I will admit that I've never read Quine's Word and Object, not the whole thing. I've read the first couple of chapters, but that's it. So why didn't you read it? What what was the uh, sticking point? Quine's behaviorism, I think. You know, he there, there are a lot of things, I think, in Quine that I, that I think are profoundly important. I mean, his criticism of the analytic synthetic distinction, I think, is 
hugely important. It's something I, I think over the last 10 years or so, I think I've become more and more convinced of the importance of that distinction. That's partly related to the thing I was talking about before about what I changed my mind about. And I don't think that his criticism of that distinction rests upon his, his behaviorism. But so much of the other stuff that is in his work on language especially is just shot through, as far as I can tell, with behaviorism. So I'm, I'm deeply sympathetic to Chomsky's criticisms of Quine and the classic paper Quine's empirical assumptions and other of his writings. And so I just, I kind of couldn't get past that. I mean, once I started getting past chapter two, it was sort of so shot through with those kinds of assumptions that I was just so unsympathetic that I, I couldn't really find any value for me personally to read it. Going back to 19th century German philosophy, with things like the critique of pure reason, let's set Hegel aside for now, but critique of pure reason, is that something that you you wish you had time to read? Or do you feel happy with the, the thought, well, life is, life is short, you read what you're most interested in? I did actually sit down and try to read it once, probably, I don't know, 20 years ago. I think it was while I was still at Harvard, and I was kind of toyed with the idea of sitting in on Charles Parsons's lectures on a critique. And I've thought about doing that with I mean, my Paul Geyer's my colleague. I mean, there is no one in the world who knows more about Creek of your reason than Paul Kyer does. But I think if I if it had been a different part of time in my life, I think I probably would do that. I think it's something that you know many people have thought was profoundly important. It has obviously had huge influence on on philosophy, but especially given the sort of shift in my interests these days, I think probably that that, that boat has sailed. Oddly enough, I mean, in the philosophy of sex course that I taught and will be teaching in the summer, there's this very famous paper by Barbara Herman that talks about the relationship between Kant on marriage and the work of Catherine McKinnon. So I kind of backed into a little sort of strange stuff in Kant, but I don't think, I don't think I'll ever have time to do it. Well, let me ask you another question about superficial features of life as a philosopher. This is question four. When a stranger asks you what you do for a living, how do you reply? I don't know how many people who listen to your podcast aren't philosophers, but I thought maybe I should say a word about why you would ask this question. It's something of an occupational hazard for philosophers to say when they're asked this question that they are philosophers, because that word just means so many different things to so many different people, and you can end up getting some strange questions and response, and then you have to try to explain, no, that's not what academic philosophy is like. It's this other thing. And so for a long time, I used to say, uh, I would tell people that I was a logician, uh-huh. or I would say that I was a philosopher, but then very quickly say, but I work on very technical, very mathematical parts of philosophy. And sometimes people would you know, follow up and ask about, about that. But recently, in a way that the questions become easier to answer, because I can... People are, you know, I'm, I'm more able to talk to people about the work I do on sexuality. And so I, I've always very quickly followed up. You know, I'm a philosopher and I work on these kinds of things and get away from the you know, meaning of life type questions or why are we here and at least give them a little bit of a sense that I do philosophy, but I am focused on particular kinds of topics. I mean, one advantage of the logician question it's like saying you're a mathematician. It t- tends to end the conversation. Whereas <laughs> yeah. the topics you work on now, I imagine people are interested in, but has this happened often? Like, are the conversations you have with people when you say that you work on pornography or you work on gender, 
Are they productive? So about now five years ago. So in 2005, I moved from Harvard to Brown, but I lived in a town that's halfway between Boston and Providence because my wife continued to work in Boston. But five years ago, she quit her job. She just got tired of it. And so we moved to Providence. And when I did that, I very shortly before we moved, I discovered this organization in Providence. It's called the Center for Sexual Pleasure and Health. It's a kind of sex education and advocacy group, very focused on sort of things like queer-friendly sex education, sex-positive sex education, that kind of thing. And I went to a event that they had, which was called Queer Porn Night. And so somebody showed various clips from queer pornography, and we had discussion about it and everything. And since then, I've become quite involved with this organization as a supporter and, you know, helping out at events and things like that. And so it's it's allowed me to sort of meet people and be able to talk to them about these kinds of topics that I wouldn't have before. So whenever I'm with, obviously, for the last year, I haven't really been able to do this. But when I'm at events for this group, you know, people are very interested in what I'm thinking about this kind of stuff and often have seen some of the things that I that I write about. And so I've, I've learned a lot. And in the papers, two papers that I published so far on this, the acknowledgments include people that I met through that organization and that I've had, had very interesting conversations with. Well, that's great. That's really encouraging to hear. And it does feel to me like gender is both an area in which, gender and sexuality, I guess, an area in which not necessarily analytic philosophers, but people working in philosophy have had a kind of influence on public discourse that of a kind that philosophers are usually chastised for not having. And then there's also feedback in which ideas from activist movements and from sort of the culture are sort of feeding back into philosophy in interesting ways. Yeah, it's I, as I mentioned briefly before, I, uh, I found most inspiration on this stuff to come from work outside philosophy. One of the real issues for me with the literature and philosophy on pornography is that it's always this abstraction that people talk about, and people never talk in any concrete way about actual instances of actual pornography. This is old old saying, if you've seen one porno, you've seen them all. I don't think that was true in the 80s when whoever said it said it, and it's definitely not true now. Pornography is a tremendously diverse phenomenon, and the internet and phones and stuff have made it possible for independent filmmakers to get involved in ways that just were impossible 40 years ago. You know, no, you don't need a distribution company, you don't need somebody to print up film or anything like that. You know, I think there's just a lot of interesting discourse going on, both in sort of public life, but also in outside of philosophy about the influence of pornography on sexuality, especially, and the nature of gender and things like that. And it, it, it's very, it's, it's, you know, it couldn't be more different from teaching logic. The courses I've taught on this kind of stuff have, for one thing, drawn much more diverse audiences than most of the philosophy courses that I teach. And secondly, have been personally challenging for me and for my students in ways that you know, logic and philosophy of language just generally aren't. I've had some really super interesting discussions with students about these kinds of topics that have, have been personal and interesting and insightful. My students are amazing, I think is the thing I want to say about that. Well, I'm going to seize the hook of the personally challenging to pivot to question five, the second Iris Murdoch question, beginning with another quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote. What are they afraid of? 
So what are you afraid of? I'm puzzled by this one too. So I, I'll tell you, I will tell you the thing that most terrifies me. I don't know whether it has anything to do with philosophy, but the thing that most, absolutely most terrifies me is the idea of being completely immobilized, but fully conscious and aware of what's going on. And that kind of, I mean, there are people who, who have this happen to them. And I think the reason I'm so terrified about this is because I used to suffer often from what psychologists call dissociation, which is this sort of sense that you're not connected to your body. Honestly, what am I terrified of? That's what I'm terrified of. But what that would have to do with philosophy, I don't know. And I've struggled to sort of think of like, are there things that I'm afraid of that would kind of be insightful about my philosophical work or something like that? The only thing I could come up with was something like humiliation. But I think I mentioned before, right, I have this worry about being desperately wrong about something. But that's, I I think it'd be a strange person who wasn't averse to being humiliated. Well, on the being immobilized, but fully conscious, maybe this is too thin a connection. But isn't there a thought experiment, if not in Frege, then in Evans or Anscombe, in which we imagine someone who is, as it were, unable to sense anything, but conscious and there's a question about whether they could use the first person, whether they would have the concept of the first person. Yeah, I do. I, I, I have not worked on the first person. I'm, I have some sense of what you're talking about, but I haven't really worked on that topic. So I don't know this example terribly well. Well, there goes my, my plan to diagnose your, yeah. your deep interest in Frege, tracing right. back to your fear of being immobilized. Yeah. Well, okay. It was worth a try. Yep. Thanks, Ricky, so much for appearing on the podcast. It's been great to talk to you. Okay, thank you very much. Ricky Heck is Professor of Philosophy at Brown University. They're the author of Frege's Theorem and reading Frege's Grundgesetze. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. <laughs>